0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To Matthew chapter 6. This is where we were this morning. We want to return to this because... Obviously, we we could not finish what we started uh, in the morning service. So, Matthew chapter 6, reading from verse 9. Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so this morning, without recapping too much, but just a little bit, uh, we looked at this, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, although really, in reality, it's the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord's prayers in John 17. And this was in response to the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he gives them a guideline, a model for them to pray. It's not something that we have to pray by rote in a mechanical way. It's good that sometimes it, a whole congregation can pray that out loud. But generally speaking, it is for our. Private devotions and it is for to guide us in our prayers, to help us to pray as He would like us to pray. And so, as He begins to show us this prayer, uh, we note it, uh, immediately that the first part of the prayer is vertical; it's directed towards the Father, and it talks about His name, and His kingdom, and His will. And we mentioned about his name, hallowed, holy is your name. And all that entails, and the great name of God, and all that entails. And we mentioned some of those names, which we won't obviously do tonight. And then, of course, his kingdom, praying about his kingdom, his kingdom come, uh, his kingdom within us that it would come alive in us, that it would be real to us, that it would be something of his kingdom manifested through us because right now the invisible kingdom of God is within us. One day it will be material and literal and physical upon the earth and we should pray that that would come. But also right now that that sense of his kingdom is within us and that we are to show that and exhibit the kingdom of God. And then we are to pray about his will be done. And uh, we said this morning, there's nothing better than being in the perfect will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so having looked at that and having started the prayer that we, the way we should pray, then Jesus then, having dealt with the vertical side of prayer, he now begins to think horizontally and think of us and others. And, uh, And there's four petitions here. And uh, these four petitions are relating to us and our needs. And he begins by saying, uh, or I should say this, first of all, that it's notable that that three of the four are spiritual needs uh, and one is a practical, physical need. And so that should let us know then that the spiritual side of our life is first and foremost... And that's what God wants to, uh, us to to understand and to develop in our personal lives. Our spiritual lives are very, very important, and they should be front and center of all that we do. But uh, because He mentions the physical need first, give us this there, daily bread. Because He mentions this first, then of our needs. Uh, that ought to tell us that God is greatly concerned about our physical well-being and, and how we are doing in our daily lives. And, uh, and, and so God is not just interested us as a spiritual creature, but as a physical creature, we're a tripartite being. We're spirit, we're soul, and we're body. And it's very, very hard to separate those three. And so God's interested in all of those parts of us. That's what makes us human a human being. And so God is greatly concerned about our spiritual life, but he's also greatly concerned about our physical life, our material life, our practical life on this earth on a daily basis. And that's why he says, give us this day our daily bread. And bread here means bread, literal bread, something that sustains us. Uh, food, that which is practical, that we need every single day. The Bible says that God opens his hand, satisfies the desire of every living creature. And we cannot live without sustenance, and we need that. And so therefore, and I'm sure we do uh, say grace is at different times, at different meals, maybe in different places. And in saying a grace we're thanking God in a way for our daily bread. For that which God has blessed us with. And so it's interesting that the very first miracle that Jesus performed was at the wedding feast at Cana and it was a very practical miracle. It was a need, a, a material need. They needed wine. And so Jesus provided that. And that set a standard, and it's amazing how, how many times throughout Scripture he met a physical, practical need, whether it's feeding the 5,000 or whether it was healing people or whatever. He was concerned about our, our being, the whole of our being. And so, give us this day our daily bread. And that ought to tell us also, because we're asking God for daily bread, that's who provides it. Now, he uses many sources, but ultimately it comes from him. From his hand. Can you imagine for a moment if God was to withhold his hand? If God was to stop the sun shining for six months, can you imagine the devastation there would be on earth? The crop failures, the starvation, if it was worldwide, it would be unthinkable to imagine that for everybody. If God was to block out the sun just for six months, say, it would be terrible. What would grow? Nothing. Not that I believe God did this, but back in our history in Ireland, there was a terrible famine, 1845 to 1850 51. The potato blight. In Ireland, it was called the Great Hunger anywhere else outside Ireland, it was a potato blight. And it was in other places, it was England, it was Scotland, it was in Europe, but Ireland particularly got hit very badly because it was our staple diet. And because Ireland at that time was very, very poor, people were very, very poor, like peasants many times. And they needed potatoes to exist. Without potatoes, they were starving by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands. And, and in that short period, that few short years of, of the potato famine, a million people died. A million people died of starvation. And all that went was starvation and deprivation and the diseases that came. And, and, and with between 1845 and 1851, 1.2 million people emigrated And in just a period of 65 years, from 1845 to 1910, 5 million people emigrated from these islands. 5 million. We have never, ever recouped that. By the way, that makes us an immigrant nation. We were an immigrant nation at one time. And so, if God was just to withhold blessing, where would we be? And so this reminds us that blessings, even our physical needs, that God sustains. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 4 and 5, Paul writes to Timothy, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so God has provided Anybody's a vegetarian or a vegan, I'm sorry. But every creature of God is good for food and is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. You may not like it to eat because my wife doesn't hardly ever eat meat. She just doesn't like it, the taste of it, by and large. But she's not a vegetarian, she's not a vegan, she's not doing it because she feels that animals couldn't be killed because they're there for that, to feed Humanity as part of our diet. And I better not go down that road any further, or I'm going to offend some people. But anyway, give us, 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 our daily bread. This reminds us that we who have plenty ought to be able to share with others. If we meet someone who's hungry, our obligation is to give them something for their hunger. Mahatma Gandhi said one time, not even God would come to a hungry man except first in the form of bread. And that's a true statement. Of course, unless we're ill and we're not able-bodied, Unless we're out of work and desperately trying to get a job and we just can't get one, unless and less and less those things, then we should be able to work and provide sustenance for ourselves and for our family. That's the biblical, scriptural way. But even if we do, we still got to acknowledge that that is just a channel Whatever our job or business or career may be is just a channel. And we realize that that could be cut off very quickly. As many has found out, suddenly you're laid off. Suddenly the business closes. Suddenly something happens. And so we need to be able to think and pray, God, we look to you for our daily sustenance and bread. And forgive us, our debts or our sins or trespasses as we forgive others their debts now isn't it interesting we touched a little bit in this this morning isn't it interesting that our Lord Jesus speaks about forgiveness in the same breath as our daily bread it, it almost seems totally out of context But actually, it's not. The Lord has put this right in the center of his prayer. Forgiveness of other sins. Of people who sinned against us. That they need forgiven, or we need forgiven for sinning against somebody else. And so, as far as God's concerned, this is absolutely necessary It's as necessary as the bread to sustain us physically. Forgiveness is as necessary to sustain us spiritually. Just if we don't eat right physically, we suffer physically. But if we don't forgive spiritually, we suffer spiritually. And Jesus puts the two together. In fact, it's the first time the word and appears in this prayer. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And so forgiveness is a big issue with God, really big issue. And Jesus is highlighting it here in his model prayer for us. I read one time about Simon Wiesenthal, who is dead now. He died in 2006, but he was 96 years old. He was was the Jew who survived several. Uh, concentration camps and was determined after the war that he would track down every Nazi he could find and bring them to justice. And he did that to the day he died. And there was one occasion, he said, where a Nazi officer was dying in a a fetal tent And a nurse contacted him and says, there's a Nazi officer dying in a field tent. Would you come and see him? Because he's asked specifically for you. He wants to meet you and talk to you. So Simon Wiesenthal went, met him, and his head was all bandaged up, and for sure he was dying. And he said, the Nazi officer said to him, he says, Mr. Wiesenthal, he says, let me tell you what I have done. And he began to reel off some of the atrocities he was involved in. One of them were, there was 200 Jews, men, women, and children, and they put them into this two-story building, and they put petrol cans in, and they threw hand grenades in and blew a lot of them to pieces. And any that tried to jump out the windows, they just machine-gunned them to death. And he says, I was part of that. And he says, I remember a father and a mother and a child who were literally burning to death, who jumped through the windows, and we shot them to death. Now he said, Mr. Wiesenthal, I want to ask your forgiveness. I cannot live with this. Would you please forgive me? Simon Wiesenthal said, I stood there, I looked at him, I said nothing, and I turned away and walked out. And left him to face his Maker, unforgiven by man and me. And he says, Many years later, I would think of that incident. And I would think to myself, Did I do the right thing? Then he said, but what would you have done in the same circumstances? Would you have forgiven him? He says, this was my implacable foe. This is the one who slaughtered my people. Would you have forgiven him? I say that because forgiveness often is a hard thing to do. It doesn't come naturally to us you need the grace of God to forgive, to truly forgive. Obviously, he didn't ask for the grace of God. I told you the story of Corrie Ten Boom, who did ask for the grace of God and got it to forgive a Nazi officer whom she recognized from a concentration camp where her mother and her sisters were died, were were murdered. So it's an issue we struggle with. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that forgiveness is a wonderful thing until you have something to forgive. (laughs) It's all academic, isn't it? Until you need to forgive. And then suddenly, it ain't so easy. And we need the grace of God. And Jesus highlights this right after saying about our daily needs, our bread, and Forgive others their trespasses. Actually, as I said this morning, when he finished this model prayer, he comes back to that same subject about forgiveness. And if I could just read that very quickly, verse 14, but if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses trespasses ah that's quite strong isn't it you remember Jesus his disciples in Mark 11 how they were walking and they were hungry and he saw a tree thinking there would be some figs on it and he went and there was none on it and he cursed the fig tree no man eat fruit of this tree hereafter forever that's all he said. Walked on. Next day, they were coming back the same way. The disciples looked. Peter says, look, Master, the fig tree you cursed is withered and died. Huh. And Jesus says, yes, have the faith of God. And you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed. And he talked about removing mountains. But then he says, immediately after that, And if you stand praying, if you have anything against your brother, forgive. (laughs) Who would have thought that our daily bread and forgiveness of others could be connected? Who would have thought that our faith and forgiveness would be connected? But it is. So that shows you how much God thinks this is a big issue. And it really is a big issue. Matthew, Henry, the old commentator said, A man in a cell on death row is fed and clothed. What is the daintiest diet and the costliest apparel worth to him as long as he remains under the sentence of imminent death? Our daily bread, but doth fatten us as lambs for the slaughter if our sins are not pardoned. So forgiveness and unforgiveness is something that is vital to our prayer lives. And the truth is that you and I owed God a massive debt. We broke his laws again and again and again and we were indebted to him. And we could not pay that debt. It was beyond our ability to pay. But in his mercy, he sent his son to pay that debt for us. That's the gospel, isn't it? And to go to that tree and to give us life as a payment for our debt of sin and to free us and to release us and to wipe that slate clean and to say you're forgiven for every sin you have ever committed. It's gone. It's paid for. It's under the blood. Thank God. Do you begin to understand why God hates unforgiveness? because it cost him so much to forgive you and to forgive me. It cost him the life of his only son. That was an awful price to have to pay. And because he was willing to pay that for us, can you understand why he would be angry if we don't forgive? If he was willing to pay that much, surely then we should be able to forgive. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 21. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, that was more than any self-respecting Jew would ever imagine to forgive anybody? Seven times. Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I mean, that was just unimaginable. 70 times, 490 times. Do you think you'd be still counting? I don't think so. Did I not say unto you, I did not say unto you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. And then he gives a parable, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. I've looked up every book and every commentary I have, and nobody agrees what the amount of that. Uh, in the end of the day, it is an enormous amount of money, beyond the imagination of any ordinary working man, beyond their imagination. You know, you think of Bill Gates with 43 billion. I mean, what's that to us? We just can't even... It's just a, just a number. It just means nothing to us. And Jesus deliberately used a great, big, massive number to get their attention. But as he was not able to pay, of course he couldn't pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment be made. That was the way things were done on those days. If you couldn't pay, your sons, your daughter, your wife, whoever you had would become slaves and try to pay off the debt. Well, there's no chance they could have lived a hundred lives and never paid this off. So Jesus has given a ridiculous illustration to hit home a point. Therefore the servant fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. <laughs> some chance. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. <laughs> they kind of put that into some kind of perspective. Vincent, the man who does the great Greek word studies. Vincent said, a hundred denarii is one millionth part of 10,000 talents. So this man owed one million times more to the king than his servant owed to him. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe, so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all the same thing, he said. The other of course, he probably couldn't pay either. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Well, how in the world are you going to pay in prison? You're not going to get any money in there, is it? So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity? on you, you ingrate, you ungrateful, unforgiving ingrate. And his master was angry. And delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So, God is saying here, the Lord is saying here, that we owed the Father a huge debt and he freely forgave us all. So, what's this little peddly thing? that we won't forgive our brother and sister in comparison to what he's forgiven us for. And then Jesus says something here that from time to time, he made some strong statements. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And so we can see that forgiveness is a vital part and it affects our prayer life, whether we do or whether we don't. Then he said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one or from the evil thing. It can mean all of those. This part of the prayer has puzzled Many. Because it almost seems a contradiction to what James said in James 1, 13, 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. So what does this mean? The New Living Translation, second edition, another said this, and don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one thought is that we pray that God may preserve us from yielding to temptation so the evil one doesn't get a handle on us. That obviously is telling us that the yielding to temptation is very real and it is highly possible and we need to ask God to preserve us from it. How many times have you heard that someone that you highly, highly respect it, that you thought could never ever fall in a lifetime, but did yield it to temptation. That's why God says, Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Because we're still <laughs> we still have our humanity. And the enemy knows our weaknesses, as well as our strengths, but he knows our weaknesses. And that may be the money, it may be the sex, it may be something else. It can be a host of things that we could yield to. So we're to pray that, that God will help us. No temptation has taken you that such as common demand, but God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you're able to bear it. But we need to pray. We need to ask God to help us rather than depend on our own strength. Although God is not the tempter, James says, but he can and will allow us to be tempted. But we need to pray that we're not overcome with that temptation, that we can handle it. Matthew twenty six forty one: Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Something that's beyond your handling. You know, if God allows a temptation to come our way, if he allows the evil one to tempt us, it lets us see how weak we are in ourselves, but also how strong we are in him to overcome it. And the only way we know is when we're tempted. And we ask God for his strength as opposed to our weakness. If we depend on ourselves when we're tempted, we're almost certainly going to fall. But if we count on him and ask him to help us, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane, there with his disciples, just before his arrest, and how that he prayed, sweated, as it were, great drops of blood, and his disciples fell asleep. And he came back. He says, could you not watch with me one hour? And then he went away again and prayed again. And then he came back and they'd fallen asleep again. He says, sleep on. But here's what he said to them. Listen is what he said. Watch and pray that you do not enter into a temptation. Hmm. Peter didn't hear that. <laughs> he didn't hear that. Because later on, in John 18, at Jesus' trial, if you read it there, at Jesus' trial, Peter was watching. Whenever they came to rest, Jesus, in the garden, he said, okay, take me, but let these go. Let these go. Because he knew what was coming, and he knew they couldn't handle it. And he already had said to Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, no, I'll die for you. No, no, you'll deny me three times. So he knew they couldn't handle it. But here's Peter, brash, bold as ever, thinking, I can handle this. I'm Peter, you know. But Jesus knew his weakness. And sure enough, there he was, denying Jesus three times. Uh, Aren't you a Galilean, the little me? Aren't you a Galilean? Didn't I see you? No, no, I I know not the man. Three times you know the story. He denied his Lord. And the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked at him. And he went out and wept bitterly. He put himself in the way of temptation. He maybe thought it was for the best reason, but it wasn't. He wasn't strong enough to handle it, and Jesus knew, and Jesus warned him. But he still did it. Now, why we're talking about this. Maybe it would come to your mind, but was Jesus not led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil? Yes. Yes, Matthew 4.1. one. Hmm. But you have to understand the Father wasn't allowing Jesus here to be tempted by the evil one to see if he would succeed or fail. To see what was in him because he already knew he wouldn't fail. He already knew what was in him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This was to show those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth that Jesus would be victorious. That he would be the Lord of all. That he would take the word of God and use it against the enemy. And he would be victorious over the evil one in those great temptations. And not only that, that, that same, those same weapons are available to us in times of temptation, to overcome the evil one, the word of God. That's the only thing Jesus used. And if it's the only thing he used, guess what? It's the best thing for us to use, isn't it? John seventeen fifteen. Jesus prayed for us. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Don't let them get to that place where they're overcome by the evil one. And our part in this is to pray that we're not going to be overcome by temptation because the devil knows our blind spots. And we may think we're great and we're strong and we're on the road for years and we know the Lord and all of that there, and suddenly the enemy comes on a blind side. And before you know it, we're weakening at the knees. Jesus says, keep praying. You don't come to that place. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now it's true that Satan no longer has any legal, lawful authority over us. If you're born again of God's Spirit, the enemy has no authority legally over you anymore because you're in the kingdom of God and Christ is your Savior, God is your Father. But he can still harass. He can still come with subtle temptations. You know, if you're on the road a good while, you're probably too smart for blatant temptations so he uses subtle ones and that's why we need to keep praying that we're not taken in by this Arthur Pink great old preacher of old he says these four petitions, these four requests show us the different sides of God's grace they're relating to our needs. So, first of all, give us. That shows providing grace. Forgive us. Pardoning grace. Lead us not into temptation. Preventing grace. Deliver us from the evil one. Preserving grace. <laughs> There's a old sermon on that, isn't there, Jason Martin? 1 Peter 4.10, he speaks about the manifold grace of God, the multifaceted, variegated, many-sided grace of God. And there's just four examples. So there's a grace for every struggle. There's a grace for every trial. There's a grace for every temptation. There's a grace for every thing you come comes against you in life, there's a grace for it. And that's what we should pray. And then keep an eye on the clock. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice he ends up where he started. He started focusing on the Father. Then he dealt with our needs and now he's back focusing again on the Father. Now let's be honest. How many times in our prayers where we may start out focusing on the Father, we worship, we praise, we think of him, we think of his greatness, his name, his goodness, his mercy, everything, and then we pray about our needs and the needs of others. And usually at that point, that's when we stop, isn't it? Well, I've, I've, I've exalted the Lord, I've prayed, I've lifted up his name, and I've, met, I've prayed for the needs of people and myself and so forth. It's time to go. You know, I spent this, night. now I'm gone. But notice how Jesus, he, he brings us back to where we started, ending up thinking of God again in his greatness and his goodness and his might and his power. Because that helps to, to cement those prayers that we've just prayed. To remind ourselves again how good God is and how big God is, how great God is, how victorious the Lord is. And so this is a way of honoring his majesty and his greatness and his glory. And that lifts our faith. Hmm. That helps us to realize that we're praying to a big God. Thou coming to a king. Newton said, Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power such none can ever ask too much. Hmm. And so this is a doxology, but it's more than a doxology. In first Timothy six, fifteen and six, he who is blessed and holy. He who is the blessed and holy potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Glory to God. Forever, he said. Forever. Forever. Many are the nations and empires that once flourished, that once were superpowers that today are gone into the dustbin of history. They're ruins, and I have walked through the ruins. Some of you have too. I've walked through the ruins in Rome. I've walked through the ruins in Turkey. I have walked through the... Grecian ruins and Athens and all those great Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and all of it is gone. The Egyptian Empire, gone. Forever gone. But this kingdom is forever and forever and forever. Glory to God. It's an everlasting kingdom. Ephesians three twenty twenty one. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. You know, it's good to think that the life that we have is never-ending. I was at a funeral service of a, of a pastor just this past week. He was 85. He went to the glory. And I was thinking, you know, and all of us who've lost loved ones have had to do this, that after they're gone, in spite of the sadness that you have to, and sometimes it's very hard, you have to go to the home, you have to look through their belongings, their clothes, whatever they have left. And nothing, nothing is taken with them. Nothing. And I thought of oh, that wee pastor. And his brothers and his family will have to go through his belongings and they'll look at his Bible and his notes and he'll go in his drawers and things will be precious and things they never thought he had, he has and little coins and all that stuff and all of it will be gone. And someday, someday will be looking through our drawers because we'll be gone. And everything we have, somebody will take. Someone will go to a charity shop. Imagine that, Joyce. Christine, what do you think? You've had them, hadn't you? But that's life. But that we, Pastor, and our loved ones in Christ, they're as much, to, they're more alive today than they ever been in all of our life on earth. Moral life never been more alive than they are right now. Because this kingdom is forever and ever and ever. And time as we know it for them has ceased. Neither any great eternity of eternities. That's awaiting us. Hallelujah. Let me just close with this. Way over in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created there's that threefold doxology to receive glory and honor and power and then over the page in chapter 5 the second part of verse 13 blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There's a fourfold doxology. And then in chapter seven, in verse 12, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There's sevenfold doxology. And as if the writer is just running out of superlatives to describe this mighty God that we serve, that has saved us. Glory to God. And Jesus, in that prayer sandwich, and we're the meat in between, he starts out focusing our thoughts on God, on his name, on his kingdom, and on his will. And then our needs are to be met. And then he brings it back to this everlasting God. This kingdom that will go forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So it's a great index for prayer, isn't it? And Jesus gave them that as a rule of thumb. Not that we just do it by rote but it gives us ideas. And I tell you, if you start to pray and you start to think in some of those things, then sometimes you just get a little bit carried away. And you may even get to pray, but your needs are anybody else's. You're just thinking the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you that you have made us part of your family that we belong to you that we have been bought by a great price your blood lord jesus has cleansed us and bought us redeemed us and we thank you that we're now in your family and we're part of your great kingdom that will last for all eternity so lord this brief spell of time on earth will soon pass but lord then we'll be into that great eternity of eternities for well, we will see your face and rejoice forevermore in all of your goodness. So we give you thanks tonight. Help us, Lord, to lift up our prayers to a God who's a big God and a good God and a great God, a God who cannot and will not ever fail, and that his kingdom will be forevermore. Amen. This we pray and give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.